ended last week in verse 11 and 12, where Paul said, I was appointed, ordained, a preacher, an apostle, a teacher to the Gentiles. For this reason, I've also suffered these things. When God calls a person there's, uh, into the ministry, there is going to be a price to be paid. If you've had a season in your life where you've tried to really go for it in the Lord and seek him and share the Lord with non-believers, you know exactly what Paul's talking about. You've been beaten up. And if you weren't conscious of the spiritual warfare, you probably just sort of stopped doing a lot of the wonderful things you were doing because it was too painful. It was just too, made life too messy and difficult. And Paul is saying, that's me. Nevertheless, I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed of the sufferings that I'm experiencing. I'm not going to go back and say, well, I wish God never called me to be a preacher, an apostle, or a teacher. And I know, he says, I whom I believe in, I'm persuaded he's able to keep what I've committed to him until that day. So all my reward is going to be in heaven. Paul was an unusual guy who had really no, no rewards on this earth. Um, he didn't have a family and houses and all of that. His parents were somewhat wealthy, and he walked away from all of that to go to the parts of the world that had never heard the gospel. But he goes, I'm not ashamed. I'm not bummed. I have no regrets because I know my reward in heaven is great. And now in verse 13 tonight, he says, Hold fast the pattern of sound words which you've heard from me in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. He tells them there, there's a form. Don't break the form. <laughs> there's a mold. And when you teach the right doctrine, it's like a mold. And it's like if you were to do a bust of somebody's face and you were to put clay on their face, if you do it right and then pop it off, you'll have a perfect image of them, right? This is what happens when we have the true gospel of Jesus Christ. It brings us a true representation of Christ. We would like to believe that when we gather together, that our worship is exactly the way Jesus wants it, whether it's in song or in the word or in prayer. You know, I think we should question that because there's times where the church can just start doing things and forget why they did things, and, uh, and it becomes sacred when it never should have been of any importance ever to begin with. Calvin, you know, they ask him what kind of hat was appropriate to preach in, what kind of hat was not appropriate, and of course they most of the, 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 the pastors had modeled their hat after the one Calvin always wore. And when they asked Calvin that question, he was surprised. He said, the only reason I even wear a hat is because in our cathedral, the pigeons are right above my head, uh, above the pulpit. And it had nothing to do spiritually at all. It was simply, but it became something that you're going to preach without your hat? You can't do that. and You can't wear that kind of hat at preaching. As silly as it is, we can get in those same ruts. But when it comes to the doctrine, we have to hold sound. You have to hold on, hold tight those, those words. Interesting, much of this Paul had said in a different way in the first letter to Timothy. 
In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12 to 16, he tells them there, don't let anybody despise your youth, but be an example to all the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Till I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. There it is. Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which is given you by the prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the eldership. Interesting, we saw that in chapter 1, where it says, stir up those gifts that were given unto you. And here he says, you were laid hands on. There's prophecy given of the uh, kind of uh, spiritual gifts you would have. You need to walk in those. Meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely to them, that your progress may be evident to all. And there, here's verse 16 now. Take heed to yourself and to your doctrine. Continue in them. For in doing this, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. And in the context, that word save is not as in salvation, but it's in it'll save you from hardship. It'll save you from presenting a wrong Jesus and ending up with legalistic people or people that are abusing uh, the forgiveness of God for their own fleshly endeavors. So there's the truth, and it's the truth that is going to set us free. And you need to realize that it's going to get hard to do that at times. But he doesn't just say, if you have good doctrine, don't worry about anything else. He does not say that. He says, and equally, faith and love. And so we, we realize here, when it comes to this, that the faith is a gift of God. And, and the only way to grow our faith is through the word of God and through prayer. And uh, through hearing the preaching of the word, we get strong in our faith. And it's a, something God does by his spirit. We don't have any, you know, spiritual weights. We can do weightlifting in to build up our faith. It's all spiritual. And then again, the love. Do we really have agape love without the spirit of God's help? We are all made in God's image. And we can have a tremendous, beautiful uh, person who's an atheist because they're made in the image of God with a certain degree of love, a certain degree of kindness, of bravery, etc. But we're talking here about the agape love, that when God's spirit touches a person's heart, it can't be offended. It can only forgive. It can only be kind. And uh, we can't do that. In 2 Corinthians 3, 5, and 6, he says, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of what? Anything as being from ourselves. I, I often hear people hating these kind of things, going, no, no, yeah, you know, there's some good stuff going on in us too. Yeah, there is, but not spiritual rewards. Not true spiritual work of God doing from your soul, from your spirit, from your body, causing somebody else to be drawn nearer to Jesus. Spiritual fruit can only be done by the Spirit. But that John 15 where Jesus says, for apart from me, you can do nothing. It's like, yeah, I mean, we can, we can do some good things, but they're not going to be spiritual fruit that, that really does an eternal weight of glory. So he says, I, 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 who's sufficient? Do I, do I have the ability to have sound doctrine? Do I have the ability to have faith and love? Who's sufficient for these things? But our sufficiency is from God, who has also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, 
Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Interesting. There's that saying that says, the word without the Spirit, we puff up. (laughs) The Spirit without the word, we blow up. But the Spirit and the word, we grow up. And uh, that's the point of growth. And, and you say, well, why, why are you bringing this up? Because let's not forget that Timothy at this time is pastoring the church of Ephesus. And you say, well, I know about Timothy, but what about the church of Ephesus? Man, if only there was a New Testament book about, called the book of Ephesians. Yes, we can know all about what was Timothy. We can learn about the people Timothy was pastoring. And then what about in Revelation 2? There we have another letter written by the Apostle John, really the Lord, (laughs) giving it to him in a revelation, but a letter to the Ephesian church. What does he say to that church in Revelation? He says, doctrinally, there's not a sounder church. Aggressiveness, you guys are the only church that took those Nicolaitans, those people that were lording it over, saying spiritual hierarchy, and you cast that down. But you are one step away from me walking out of your church. Because although you've got all this doctrinally correct stuff, what? You guys know. What did the Ephesian church do there in Revelation 2? Anybody? Yes, they lost their, their first love. They lost that love. And, and Jesus is basically saying, I, you know, I, I'm looking at this relationship and the church is my bride. And, and yes, you're doing everything required of you doctrinally as a wife to be sort of, the fiance, if you would. But there's just not a love like there used to be. You didn't start this way. You've come to a point where that love went puttering out. And maybe, again, there, there's something there that's, that's God's trying to stir up a life in the spirit. Isn't that, isn't that important, guys? I mean, if you look through the book of Acts... One thing the commentators all point out, that 99% of the book of Acts could not be written if the work of the Spirit was taken out of that book. It was all by the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God baptized them in the Spirit. The Spirit of God spoke through Peter. Then the Spirit of God spoke to Peter, the Ananias and Sapphira lion. And then the Holy Spirit uh, gave them great uh, fruitfulness and evangelizing. And it's, then the Holy Spirit told them to give themselves to the word of God in prayer and to raise up some elders. And then through the spirit of God, Stephen, the first martyr, spoke. You just keep going through there. And it's the spirit of God. You, we couldn't do it. And so we, the commentators also typically write, <laughs> if the Holy Spirit was taken out of many churches today, would we even know it? You know, can we teach good sound doctrine if we use good tools of 
uh, hermeneutics. Yeah, we can. I, I think we know churches like that. We might have been from churches like that. Where the Holy Spirit, being open to the Holy Spirit, lifting your hands, clapping your hands, waiting on the Lord, just, and, and whatever God's doing, it's like, that's embarrassing. I don't want that to happen. And in reality, we'll lose our love without the Spirit of God. It's, it's the Spirit of God that, that causes our hearts to be stirred up with a love and a passion and a desire for Jesus. In Ephesians, he says, to the Ephesus church, he says, be filled and keep being filled with the Holy Spirit. He's telling them to do it. Hold it. What do you mean? Well, there's that, that time where knowledge begins to puff up. But love towards God, love towards the church, that's what edifies. Without true doctrine, we're going to take the, the, the clay off the face of the bust, and we're going to pull it off, and it's not going to look like Jesus at all. Everything we do should look like Jesus. And so, again, we come back, and, and Paul's telling Timothy some important things. Boy, we, we realize the church of Ephesus was going through real hardship, pretty much like in a lot of churches. We see in Ephesians 4, verse 30 to 32, it says there that they were bitter. And, and, and Paul has to tell them, I don't care what they've done to you. It's nothing compared to what you've done to Christ. And Christ has forgiven you. You must, therefore, be imitators of Christ and forgive one another in the same way. Then we see Ephesians 5, and it's, it's basically the Roman Empire, the lewdness, the, the, the sexuality, the sinfulness of the Roman Empire was radically affecting the church. I'm so glad we are so strong in the Lord that the world doesn't affect us, right? <laughs> That's something also we have to fight against. And Paul tells Timothy, or tells the church of Ephesus, the answer is being filled with the Holy Spirit. And then he says, some of you guys, some of you leaders even, at the church of Ephesus, I would like you guys to realize you're dead. <laughs> you're not dying you're not losing your first love. You are dead. And I'm praying for you that God's spirit would come upon you and you would arise from the dead. Wow. And then, of course, if we were asked to teach a Bible study on spiritual warfare, where's the first place we'd go? Ephesians 6, right? Boy, they were going through it there. And, of course, they were. Because the church of Ephesus had become sort of the Jerusalem, if you would, of all the, the, the world at that time. Paul there in Ephesus started the church, and he wanted to go and keep traveling and preach the gospel until uh, he got all the way around the planet, but he got stuck in Ephesus for three years. And it was this college town, and he would teach in the college and, and he had this church. Some commentators say that that church ended up growing to as many as 300,000 people. And from that place, what place? Ephesus. Where is that? Asia Minor. Where is that? Turkey. 
Did you, do you realize that? That for a very long time, the center of Christianity was in Turkey, a place today where you most likely get arrested or put to death for being a Christian. It's, it's pretty amazing when you really contemplate it that Paul spent much of his time in Turkey and preaching the gospel throughout uh, Turkey. And, um, and so we, we, we see how Christianity can completely die out in a place where it was once the hub. Anywhere else in the world that happened? <laughs> what about England? There was a time where every missionary in the world was sent out from England. And then England began to lose its first love. Oh, the colleges, the universities. They had theological, uh, you know, major colleges. And all the colleges, they, everybody had to learn the theology. But not because they had a love for Jesus or a faith in true doctrine. It's because this was cultural. But yet it was dead. And we don't need to even... Try to think about how dead England is today spiritually. And so, after England, us. <laughs> Are we going in that way? Absolutely. I mean, the way California is going, we got a couple more years before we're in prison for just things that we do every week right now that doesn't seem to bother anybody, but it'll be illegal to do it. There's no doubt whatsoever. Canada, pastors have been arrested for saying homosexuality sin. It would be illegal for you to read Romans chapter 1 in Canada. And of course, Sweden and Switzerland, all those places also have Protestant pastors in jail because they're wanting to keep sound doctrine and wanting to preach it. And we see the spiritual uphill battle we have I mean the, 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 the Hollywood ability with movies and TV shows whether it's serious or making you laugh or just entertaining you they have done a perfect job telling everybody that homosexuality and the 18 different ways you describe a transgendered or whatever person they are the most wonderful people in our culture. And if those people are around you, celebrate them because we actually need more of those kind of people. This, they've done it. And, and you find yourself watching these movies going, man, the coolest guy in that movie is the homosexual or the transgendered person. Everybody else is sort of goofballs or idiots, but that person's the wisest person in that show. And, and, and that's exactly... What's supposed to happen? You're to have a, somebody in one of the shows that you're, um, you, you find yourself tender-hearted towards that person. Now, I, I, I believe that uh, we should not hurt or condemn or kick out of our restaurants or anything like that. I, that's, that's horrible. That's sinful. That's evil. But at the same time, as much as I say I love you if you're, uh, you know, wrestling with same-sex attraction or transgendered or whatever it is I love you and we want the love of Christ to be surrounding you 
But at the same time, if you're living in that, that is sin. And, and it, we, we can't take sound doctrine and, and start molding it in an image that would be less offensive. Because now we've got a different Jesus, a less offensive Jesus, but it's not the true Jesus. And once you start bending it a little bit, it becomes distorted completely. Jesus makes it pretty clear in his own teaching that not one jot or tittle would pass away. All the word of God is perfect, the Bible says. That not even a period or a comma, jot or a tittle, will disappear uh, from the truth of God and his word. It's just clear. And so Timothy was in those places. And Paul told him there to be strong in the Lord and the power of his might to the church in Ephesus about spiritual battle. Put all the armor on you've got. You're in a battle. This is what he's talking about in First and Second Timothy. Timothy doesn't want to fight. He's a, he's a, he's a timid spirit. He's not an A-type personality person. He doesn't want to confront anybody. And, and Paul is, is, is telling him, this, is, this can't, you, you can't be a pastor and, and not have suffering. <laughs> Jesus said, beware when all men speak well of you. Something's wrong with you. You, you are so uh, amiable trying to make who you are and what you think and how you believe, just you're ready to change it at any moment in time to please whoever is in front of you, that you don't stand for anything. And there are no Christians like that, Jesus said. If you don't gather with me, you will scatter. If you are not for me, you will be against me. And so there's that point in time where we don't let them stuff words in our mouth, like they're trying to make it look like all of us who love Jesus and love Christianity we're out with a sign saying, God hates homosexuals and, you know, all these type of things. Has anybody in this church ever held such a sign? There's no way. We would, we would do the opposite, wouldn't we? Because we love them. We, we don't have any hatred, any anger. But they're telling you, you're either a Christian and you're angry or you're a person who loves homosexuals and you're not angry. But there is no solid Christian who doesn't hate homosexuals. It's like, you're nuts. Quit putting words in my mouth. Quit defining who I am. Because we are solid, Bible-believing Christians, and we love homosexuals. We love transgendered. What such were some of us, it says in 1 Corinthians 9. You, look at you, some of you, he says, uh, are homosexuals, are sodomites, are extortioners, are adulterers, are fornicators, are liars. And he goes and gives this list and he says, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were cleansed. And so it, it gets messier. It gets harder. He's going to tell us in another chapter, chapter three, that by the way, anybody living truly godly walking in that image of Christ, you will be persecuted. It's, it's just Satan is going to not allow that equation to go on. 
that you will suffer for standing for Christ and you will pay that, that price. And so Timothy had an immoral church that was wanting him to not say anything to offend them in their Roman ways. He had people angry at each other, didn't want to hear that they're bitter and need to repent. <laughs> they were in crazy spiritual, under spiritual attack. The church was a college town, and they were rather intellectuals. And, and, and Timothy evidently went back and said, hey, we're going to sure up this sound doctrine. And they did. But in so doing, they, they forgot that, that God is love <laughs> and that the true essential thing in being a Christian is not our intelligence about theology. The world will know we're Christians because we're so incredibly holy. The world will know we're, so, we're Christians because we can out-debate any atheist. How will the world know <laughs> that we're Christians? by our love for each other and our love for God. And, and so, again, you know, when we come to, to whatever it is, just let there be love in it and, and stir up yourself unto love and good works. So we worship. We want to, there to, Jesus said to the woman at the well, for God desires worshipers for himself, and they worship him in spirit and in truth. How does that mean in the spirit? Well, we see the Bible saying God wishes that we'd lift up holy hands. We'd clap our hands. The Bible says bow before him, to, to prostrate yourself before him. There's all kinds of ways. Some are appropriate here at church and some aren't. But the fact is, is there, there is a passion. There is a spirit in it. That first love. You know, you ever... You know, we're from San Diego, so we'll have a lot of honeymooners come to San Diego, and you can always tell who they are. They can't keep their hands off each other. There's no place they're not kissing each other. <laughs> There's no place they're not, you know, pawing each other. There's just this deep desire for one another that, that just, they block the whole world out, and this is just them and their little bubble of love. That first love, Right? Man, that's, that's what Jesus wants us to go back to remember that. And what, did you, what kind of works did you do when you were there? Redo those works and watch that simply, the passion for the Holy Spirit work in your life happen again. Well, in verse 14, also that good things which was committed to you keep by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. All kinds of good things he had talked about in this chapter. He had talked about his salvation. Hang on to that. Endure to the end. The gospel. The gifts. His calling as a minister. Don't lose your identity. Satan wants to pound you to say, no, you're not really saved. You're not really a Christian. We often pound ourselves. Men sometimes see us in, in our sinfulness and call us hypocrites and, and want to tear down what God's declaring and to be ashamed of the gospel. Don't hold on to that. It's been committed to you and to me, to all of us. I, I think as we, you know, look at the New Testament, what should be happening in the church, a lot of what happens in churches in the Western world, none of it is in the Bible. It's not bad. Most of it 
causes us to mature in the Lord. But a lot of it, it's not in the Bible, but it's keeping us from doing the stuff in the Bible because we're so proud of the stuff we're doing, like going to church and you know, serving one another and, and helping out in ways that we, we say that's so sufficient that we don't need to be a real disciple, going into the world making disciples. Or as Paul tells us in chapter 4, all of us have the work of an evangelist. And say we have the gifting or the calling or the grace. It just simply says we all need to do the work of an evangelist. When? In season, out of season, which is all seasons, right? And so I, I think it would, would not be inappropriate for me to say that I believe God would have every one of us to witness to somebody. In a year? Let's just start there. 2018. Did you find a non-believer, find out they were a non-believer, and then share Jesus with them? If you're saying no, well, you've got just a few days left, you know. January's almost here. But when they then say, yes, I'm interested in Jesus, then we just say, let me start sharing to you what the Bible says. Let's read through the Gospel of Matthew and let's talk about it. And you start meeting with that person and talking to them about it. You're going into the world and what? You're making disciples. Now, can we organize that into a church program here at the church? Not, not really. It's sort of something that has to start with you and end with you. I mean, we can provoke you like I'm trying to do right now. <laughs> and, and, and to say, but I mean, isn't that just something that so clearly would be a fruit of all Christians? But yet we often say, well... I came to church and I stayed a long time and I taught Sunday school or I worked on the worship team or I ushered or I go on a mission trip once a year. I, I do this and that. So do I really need, I mean, just like we'd say, do we really need to seek God in the word every day? Of course. And when you first fell in love with Jesus, you, you, you probably had 10 Bibles around you. One in your back pocket, a couple in your car. I mean, you were just always looking at verses, couldn't get listened to enough Bible studies off the radio. That was all a part of that passion that should not have left, those desires that should still be there. Hold on to those things that have been committed to you and keep them. How? By the Holy Spirit. We are not able. We don't have the strength. We don't have the power. We do uh, wonder in many, many ways. Well, in verse 15 to 18 is the verses we had read before. I tied them into the earlier verses when we were talking about Timothy being ashamed of Paul because he was in prison. And then there's a list of other guys that also were. And now they completely reject Paul, not just passively, but they're, they're very actively uh, now, not even not on Paul's team, they're trying to preach the gospel in such a way to hurt him, we learn in Philippians. But he did, Paul's attitude is just, in verse 18, may the Lord grant them all mercy on the day of the Lord. Because they, they should have been strong in the Lord and, and hanging in there 
with those who are imprisoned for the gospel rather than just trying to move on with their life and ignore the fact that they're in prison or, in this case, to continue to help Paul uh, in his imprisonment. I don't know if you guys heard, but at the end of last week, at the beginning of this week, uh, China did a big push again, arrested 100 Chinese pastors. And uh, they represent tens of thousands of Christians that are also on that list. And boy, if you've ever read any of those stories, it's, it's horrible, unbelievable. That's happening right now in the world. Well, in chapter 2, verse 1, you, therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. You. I don't care if you preach it right now, Timothy. I don't care if you got 10 great Bible studies on it. I need you to apply the grace of God in your life like never before. He's saying, therefore, the people that are rejecting me, these same people that are going to reject you. Yes, Paul says it's hurtful when non-Christians stone me or rob me or beat me. But then there's that daily concern for the church where I have disgruntled brothers that I rebuked for being bitter or rebuked for bad doctrine or whatever. And now those people that used to seek me out to minister to me are now out preaching messages to hurt me or trying to ignore me. And, and he's saying, I, I get it. I get it. It's, it's tough. Years ago, there was a study, and they said that the average seminary in the United States graduates nine students. At the end of five years, there's only one of those students that are still in the ministry. And almost all of them got out of the ministry because they were just so beat up by people pointing out uh, their shortcomings and, and that they should have been better and preached shorter and whatever. I don't know. Just all of the, the scrutiny. It's just, I can't take it. I don't need this. And here's Timothy, this young guy. He's single, we know. He's not married, and he's got this large church. And man, there is some big problems in this big church. And he does not want to be there. Paul has to say, you've got to continue. You're, that's, the, that's the hub of Christianity right now. And I need my son Timothy to be there. But I need my son Timothy teaching the grace of God the way I taught him the grace of God. God did a unique thing in Paul's life. And that was the clarity of salvation by grace. It was just amazing. He writes to the church in Rome and he says, you guys are, are mixing up the grace of God. You're confused by it. But then you go through the rest of Rome, or the book of Romans, and you realize, I'm sort of confused by it. What, what is it? What isn't it? And the bottom line is, is if you're teaching the grace of God correctly, it, it, it's so overwhelming that those who have a wrong heart are going to take that and just run with it and, and live a sinful life or live a lukewarm life. But those who get the grace of God and have a true heart, they grab it and it causes in them, it produces in them a diligence to be holy and to seek God and to live for God 
like never before. And so Paul was accused of teaching an incorrect gospel. And the fact was, a lot of people that were trying to preach the gospel of grace that Paul did, did get it wrong. But not his son Timothy. I need you there, standing firm at this sound doctrine. And there he says, you've got to be strong. And this is, you know, grab onto the power. We know it's through the Holy Spirit about what? The grace. The grace is sort of opposite of self-sufficiency. Grace understands that the greatest work that God is doing is not through us, but in us. Paul says repeatedly, not I, but the grace of God that was in me did these things. That's such an essential point. Interesting, in Acts 20, verse 24, Paul actually calls the gospel the gospel of grace. Interesting, huh? Well, what gospel are you preaching? You can say, well, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul would say, the gospel I'm going to preach to you is the gospel of grace. Why is that? Because that is salvation. In John 1.14, For the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of what? Grace, grace and truth. And then he clarifies this in verse 16 of John 1. And of his, what? Fullness we've all received. What? Grace for grace, or grace upon grace. So, Jesus came. And yes, he preached a lot of great stuff. A lot of it really applied to the legalistic Pharisees. It's, that's why it's hard to go through the Gospel of Mark or Matthew because there's a lot of pounding of religiousness and religious people and Pharisees and self-righteous people. But, but really, more than anything, it's just Jesus himself. He was the light of the world when he was in the world. He was the salt of the earth when he was there. He tells the multitude... Just come unto me and be in my presence. Come unto me all you're weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Learn of me. My yoke is easy, my burden is light, and in my presence you'll find a rest for your souls. People didn't feel condemned when they were around Jesus. Oh, they, they tried to put him in a situation where he would feel uncomfortable where he, somebody would feel condemned by him. And so he got this woman caught in the act of adultery and throws in front of him, well, the law says we're to stone her. And Jesus doesn't say anything. He just starts writing in the dirt. And it says from the oldest Pharisee to the youngest Pharisee, they all disappeared. And then he says, who's, who's ever without sin, go ahead, throw the first stone. And then he starts writing in the dirt. They all left, and he says, to the woman. He wasn't uncomfortable. She didn't feel condemned. He just simply said, go and sin no more. There's nobody here to condemn you. <laughs> I'm not going to condemn you either. I didn't come to condemn anybody, but to seek and to save. And so people had no problem keeping him up till late at night, <laughs> coming early in the morning. It, it's, it's incredible that it was just being around Jesus was this spirit of grace. 
Grace, man, how do, how do you describe grace? Oh, there's a lot of neat little coined terms, but this is what we know about it. In Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9, we are saved by grace. What saved me? Grace. Well, wasn't it Jesus? Yes. But it's as I receive of the fullness of God, it's grace upon grace. Of his fullness, we all received. Jesus came 100% God in human flesh. And he was full of grace, and he was gracious, and he was kind, and he was loving. And he got really angry at anybody who attacked people walking in that grace. When the apostles are walking through the fields and they're pulling off the heads of the wheat and chewing on them, the Pharisees come at him and say, hey, they're working on the Sabbath. They're breaking the Sabbath. Man, Jesus would call them the devil, whitewashed tombs with dead men's bones. He called them liars, sons of Satan. I mean, Jesus just became vicious towards self-righteous people, especially people with a condemning spirit. The number one reason the younger people of this millennial age that are not coming to church, the number one reason is they say because it's a place where you feel condemned. Interesting, isn't it? That sometimes we get so locked in that we forget what this is all about. It's all about Jesus. (laughs) Whatever we do here, It should look like Jesus. In other words, if we could go back in time and we could go sit by the Sea of Galilee and hear the kinds of things Jesus was saying, the way Jesus was touching people and talking to people, we we should just be like, oh, this is like being back at our church in Calvary Chapel, Red Bluff. Identical. All we're doing, it's a different location. But it's the same Jesus. Isn't that how people are going to get saved? Jesus said, if I am lifted up, then all men will come unto me. And so it's the grace of God. And what does it say? It says a person then hears the word, the gospel, and believes they have faith in the grace. Not of their selves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And then he goes on, we, we, we learn In Colossians 2, 6, he says, As you therefore have received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him. How did we receive Christ? By faith in the grace. We we had a faith that said, even though I'm the worst of all sinners, the grace of God can make me as white as snow. Even though I am weak and sinful and lustful and angry and greedy and and, and it doesn't seem to have left me even after I've asked Jesus to come into my life. I'm struggling just as much with all of these things. What does it say in Romans 5? Things I don't, or 7, it says things I don't want to do, I do. Things I do want to do, I don't do. But then he says, but where sin abounds, what? Grace abounds more. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ. God knows he saved humans, <laughs> in sinful bodies. And he's not going to condemn you for being human. But the Bible makes it clear that we can walk even in these sinful bodies, even as Jesus walked. So we don't want to 
cop out and say, well, yeah, we're human, we all sin, no big deal. No, it's a big deal because you reap what you sow. And then how did we receive Christ? By grace. How do we, how do we make one step, ten steps, ten years of steps? It's walk in what? Grace. <laughs> walk in him. Walk in his grace. Be in his presence. And you are in that presence. They, they can sense that. The world can sense that. That, that. that there's something going on as we're filled and being filled with the Spirit. And then it goes on in Acts 13, 43. It says, persuade them to continue in the grace of God. That was the big message. When him and um, Barnabas went around and started talking to all the churches they had planted in the first missionary journey, that was it. He said two things. One, even though you've been suffering while we're gone, you're going to suffer much, much more. <laughs> and secondly, continue in the grace. And it says their hearts rejoiced in both of those things. In Hebrews 4, 14 to 16, it tells us there that God has, Jesus came into human flesh so he could be this great high priest who comforts us in all our weaknesses. He sympathizes with us. He doesn't condemn us. He was in all points tempted as we are so he can say, man, I know how hot that flame can get. I know how lustful my flesh could get and how greedy and how angry. I, I felt all of those things in my human flesh. And of course, he didn't sin, unlike us. But since we know that we have a God that says that he raised from the dead, his human body had been translated from the earthly to the heavenly. And it says in the Bible, we are exactly like him. Little children, I don't know what we'll be, but I know we'll be exactly like him. Our earthly bodies will turn into heavenly bodies. And so it tells us in Hebrews that Jesus forever is in human flesh. So he can continue throughout all of eternity to be our brethren. So there he is now. You could see the scars in his hands if you're in heaven. You could see the scars upon his brow heavenly body resurrected like we will be someday but nevertheless there upon that throne he remembers humanity <laughs> scars of it in his flesh as he sits upon the throne and the bible tells us there that we should understand that grace should cause us to be bold when we're weak when we're struggling when we're sinful that if we are walking in grace, it says there in Hebrews 4.14 or 4.16, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may tend mercy and find grace to help us in the time of need. So a person having faith in the grace at salvation is where they say, I'm bringing nothing to this game but dirt and sin and all my wretchedness. And God says, I still want you to have the gift of salvation. You're going, why? Because I love you. And this is what grace is. You don't deserve it. But I, I want you to be share my heaven with me for eternity. So the Bible makes it clear. Nobody comes to Jesus unless the Father draw, draws them. That it says in Romans 3 that none of us would see our sinful condition. There's none righteous. No, not one. 
But there's that point where you have faith in your heart that even though I'm the most sinful man that's ever walked the face of this earth, God's cross is greater. His blood is greater. The price he prayed is greater. His grace is bigger than my sin. And we say, I'm going to walk in the fact that God just loved me. He forgave me. He made me white as snow. You know, for somebody who never received the gospel, maybe you can remember that day with yourself. If you weren't raised in the church, I, I was four or five when I received the Lord. But if you remember that, just that, that, that point in time, I can remember when I was 15, I just clear as day, totally gave my life to the Lord. And man, I just felt like I could, was floating. And I had such a faith in my heart of that God's going to stay with me. And whatever I go through, he's going through it with me. And no matter how many times I fall, he's going to pick me up equally as many times. And I just had so much faith. But then you get out a week into it. Oh, God, I'm so sorry. I should know better. I've been a Christian for a week now. And we start getting our eyes on ourselves and our strength, our power, our determination, our abilities to fight our flesh. And we just keep losing. <laughs> there's, there's that point that says, God, I need love in my heart for you and, and for my fellow brethren. But I... I, I it's not there. And so we look to the grace, right? We come into that throne of grace. And we come boldly. We don't, we don't go walk in, oh God, I'm so sorry to bother you. Forgive me, I know you're so busy and there's so many other things more important than me. And you know, But just real, real quick, uh, would you forgive me? Does God like that? You know, I, I try to pastor in such a way that I never look like I'm in a hurry. Because I don't want people to think I'm in a hurry. People say, oh, I don't want to bother you very much, Pastor. But it's like, I'm not doing my job right if they, they say that. If they think that. In the same way, we need to we think about the kids. You know, my kids, when they were small, they didn't care if there was 10 people in line waiting to talk to me. They ran right to the front of the line. Right? I could be in my office doing a counseling appointment and my little kids would just knock the door open and go jump up on my lap and start digging in my drawers and finding gum and whatever they wanted, anything they put in their mouth, they just took it and spun around and headed out, right? Because they really had faith in my grace, right? They, 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 they didn't even think for a second that, that them pursuing my company, my presence, was going to anger me in any way. Because they just knew that's my dad. He loves me. There's nothing I'll ever do that he won't love me. That's faith in the grace. So we just come boldly into the throne of grace like a little toddler. Jump up on Jesus' lap. What did you do when you were three and four? You make fish, fish face with your dad's lips, right? Jump up on Jesus' lap. Make, make his uh, face into fish lips there. Start pulling on his beard. Right? This is, this is the grace. So we come boldly into that. And it's, it's awesome that he says, my whole throne is grace. There's this glassy sea of grace. We've got to swim in the grace to get to the throne of grace. And we're there wet with grace. <laughs> we're at his throne of grace saying, I need grace. 
you're at the right place. <laughs> yeah, that's, I'm glad. I'm glad you know where the source is. But Satan wants to condemn us. He wants to try to make you think that you're irritating God. You're bothering God. You're, you're, you're just, your weakness is just really messing up the plan. And, and he's right on the edge of being done with you. So Satan wants you to think you come to the, the, the temple, if you would, in heaven, and, and you're knocking on the door, and, and the angel says, yes, and I say, I, I need to see Jesus. And come on in, and you go up there, and Jesus, forgive me, I've sinned. And Jesus says, oh, oh yeah, it's rough in that human flesh, I, I know, but you're forgiven. But then 10 minutes later, we got to knock on that door again. And there's, the angel opens the door again. Oh, hey, I know you. You were just here a minute ago, weren't you? Yeah. Yeah, I need to see Jesus again. Jesus, you know, forgive me. Oh, yeah, okay, yeah, sure. You know what I said just a few minutes ago. Yeah, you're forgiven. Ten minutes later. Now, the devil wants you to think that, that people in heaven are just getting a little irritated at you. The angel's going, again? I guess you can come in three times. Come on in. And there's Jesus sort of looking at you, sort of surprised. And yeah, yeah, you're forgiven. And then 10 minutes later, I need to knock on that door again. And now everybody's getting sarcastic. You know, the angel's like, oh, look who's here. Ooh, you know. And there's Jesus like going, don't even walk down here. I I forgive you. Just go, go. And then 10 minutes later, more, you got to go back again. And now they're looking sort of really worried about you. The angels, you know, bumps the other angel and says, have you ever seen any Christian need this kind of forgiveness before? And the other angel says to him, no, no, not in 2,000 years. This is, this is the first time. And there you're coming to Jesus, and Jesus now is just shaking his head, looking at you, going, let me guess. You sin, you need more grace. Just go. Just here it is, leave. And then 10 minutes later, you got to do it again. And now they're just like, they're shaking their heads in disbelief. And, and as you're approaching Jesus, Jesus says, Bring the books over here. Look at his name. Is he really in the book of life? Because if he is, I've never seen anybody like this before. I'm not sure how to deal with this. Because usually when somebody's name is in the book of life, they they don't need this kind of help. See, that's what Satan wants you to think. But it's not that way at all. The grace of God loves you. It's like when my kids were on the tricycle and they would fall over and have a little scratch on their knee. Oh, I'm dying, I'm dying, you know. Call an ambulance and you look around their knee, you can't find any scrapes, but... Well, let me get you a Mickey Mouse Band-Aid, you know, and, oh, I feel better now. I'm on my way, you know. A few minutes later, they come back. Oh, now it's my elbow. Put another Band-Aid, you know. 15 minutes riding the tricycle, they have 80 Band-Aids all over their bodies, you know. And what do you think it, what do you think it is? It's cute. You're, you're just going, yeah, you, in, in your mind, you're just like crashing and burning and near death on every tricycle accident. And the reality is, you just need a little comfort from your dad 
your mom with a little band-aid, a little kiss, a little hug. That, that's, that's our God. See, that's grace. Timothy, you're in Ephesus, and there's the pressures of the church and, and all this hardship, and you're trying not to preach the gospel with the edge, the two-edged sword is supposed to be, because people are going to get angry and leave and say, start saying bad stuff about you as they're saying bad stuff about me, and you're trying to disassociate with me so you don't get that backlash. And I'm telling you, stop this. I command you as a commanding officer, be strong in the word of God. Keep the doctrine. But don't let faith and love think they're not important. It's all by the power of God's spirit. Now, you've got to get back to being strong in the grace. Because it's the grace of Jesus. That's it. Of his fullness. That God came into human flesh. And what did we see? Grace, a full fullness of grace and truth. And then when we spent time with him, hanging out in Galilee and walking along the roads of Nazareth, what did we experience with Jesus of his fullness we all received? What was it? Grace upon grace. Do you understand? Grace in and of itself is more than you need. The second grace really doesn't even, can't really exist. Because grace is, already saying everything you need and a million times more. So let's picture you going back to Jesus needing forgiveness. And this time you got your little five pound, your little five gallon bucket that you need filled up with grace. <laughs> and you go in there and you're like, uh, could, I, could I have a little, little grace in here? And, and the Lord turns around with a fire hose, and, and you're hanging onto that five-gallon thing, and it gets hit out of your hand, and, and then all of a sudden, all the angels of heaven turn their fire hoses towards you, and there you are now in this puddle, and it's getting bigger. It's just, oh my goodness, I'm out in the middle of a pond. Oh, it's getting bigger. I can't even see land now. Good Lord, please stop. No more grace. You said grace. I'm sorry. Too late. And there you are finally. It settles down a little bit. You can't see land. You're pedaling. It's got to be at least a thousand feet deep. And then we hear this voice, upon grace. And then you look and these walls of dams are opening up on every side of you. And just the water coming torrently, powerfully. And there's Jesus over there laughing and the angels going, isn't it great when they're new Christians and learn about grace? for the first time. That's grace upon grace of his fullness. The Bible couldn't make it clear as a father loves his child, as a husband loves his wife, as a hen gathers the chicks under her wings. So many examples of just saying this is a relationship based on God's ability to do something. <laughs> and if you believe in God, then you don't believe anything's hard for God. All things are possible and nothing's impossible. Can any man save you? Can't do it, even though he wants to. He doesn't have the power within himself, does he? 
But to start thinking that God is limited. We can start doing that. Oh, God's full of grace. He's a little more gracious than the most gracious person I can think of. And you think about how your patients sort of tested that person who has a lot of grace. Even they even sort of got mad at you. And you're going, well, Lord's a notch above that. <laughs> the Lord is not a notch above that. God is not like man, Isaiah says, that we should compare him. Well, like the story of grace, there's more to go. But he says in Philippians 1, the one thing he says, the work that God began in you, he'll complete, complete it. And he says, it's right for me to think this of you. Why? Because the church of Philippi were partakers with grace with me. Why do I know God's going to finish that work? Because the church in, in Philippi there, they got the grace. And because they got the grace, I know God's going to be able to complete that work in you. In 1 Peter 5, verse 10 and 11, But may the God of all grace who called us to eternal glory by Christ Jesus, the God of how much grace? <laughs> all grace. There's a title for Jesus. Jesus, our Lord, God of all grace. He called you to eternal glory. He's going to get you there. And then the final verse on this, Ephesians 2, verse 4 through 7. But God, which is rich in mercy. His mercies are new every morning, right? Because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved and raised us up together and made us to sit in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I want you to note that that's past tense. He's saying, he's telling the believers of Ephesus, the Lord has already set you in heaven with him. You're enthroned with him in heaven right now. And then verse 7 that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So you're sitting together in heavenly places with Christ right now. He already saw it. He's already got you there. And then what's the main thing that's going to happen up there? It's going to take an eternity to just start revealing and keep revealing his grace and the grace that's there. It takes an, an infinite amount of time to keep scratching at what is the grace of God. Well, Lord, we thank you for your word here tonight. And we ask, Lord, that this gospel of grace would go deep, deep, deep in our souls. That you, Lord, would, would cause something new to happen in us here tonight. I love that book of Pastor Chuck, Why Grace Changes Everything. And it does. Help us here to be people of grace. Just as you have loved us, that we would love one another. That we would be people of sound doctrine, but much by the power of the Holy Spirit, full of love for you, Jesus, and love for one another. Cause us to be a people, partakers of the grace. Through the preaching of Apostle Paul, that we're partakers of grace with him. And we thank you for this great work you've begun. And we're confident that you're going to complete it because of your faithfulness.
We're going to close with this one song. We can all stand up if you like. It's an old hymn.